Good evening, folks. Wonderful to have you here. Uh, if you're new, welcome. My name's Aaron, this is Jordan. Uh, if you are new, I'd love to meet you. So come and say hi afterwards. So this is the last sermon in 2 Corinthians, and I don't know about you, but I have found this book tremendously challenging, uh, especially the last sort of five weeks. I think we had those three weeks in money and uh, that was oh, I found that huge. And the last couple of weeks, Paul talking about the glory of God being exposed in his weakness. Very profound stuff, quite freeing actually. You would have noticed if you've been around for a while that during these sermons we've often had to delve into the, the backstory in the passage. You know, the way Paul talked, he was uh, obviously addressing some specific accusations on occasion. Accusations like, uh, you're too weak to be the leader, you've got too many problems, you're not a very good speaker, it's a bit dodgy, you don't take money, uh, show us proof that Christ is speaking through, accusations like that. And so he was in the firing line a little bit and addressing those. And this week, as he finishes the letter, it feels like he's turning the table on his accusers, these false teachers who want to get rid of him. And it's like, it's like these accusers are all up in his face, and, and Paul sort of takes his shoulders and he kind of rotates them 180 degrees so that they're facing a mirror. And he says to them, you know, uh, the relevant question is not, is God speaking through me? The, the really important question is, are you guys actually Christians? He turns, he turns the tables on him. He says, the question is not, am I your apostle? It's, are you a Christian? And I think that's uh, the main idea right at the start of our passage tonight, this last little section of 2 Corinthians. And they're very strong words. You heard read, verse 5, examine yourselves. That's quite full on, right? Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. And then it goes on, and later in verse 5, it says in the Greek, uh, uh, specifically it says, know yourself. So it's examine yourself, test yourself, know yourself. That's the guts of the passage. And I think the rest of the text, you could break it up into ways the presence of Christ shows itself in your life. The proofs of following Jesus. Remember the context again of Paul here. Um, for him, there are question marks around the Corinthian church. So he's saying, examine yourself. Like, take, take a bit of a stock. Take stock of your situation here. He knew that there was, you know, there was this kind of commitment to these false teachers, and there was some immorality, and there was disunity. And Paul is saying to them, listen, I'm going to come and visit you shortly, so you need to just check yourself. You need to get right with Jesus. Uh, that's what verse 10 is about. He was basically saying, I, I'm, I wanna, it's, it's a gracious thing. He's going, I want to give you guys a chance to sort it out before I get there because I don't want to get there and have to be the tough guy and maybe like kick people out of the church. So check yourself. This is Paul doing the hard work of being a truth teller. We, we talked about this last week. This really is an act of grace. Now, we don't have uh, the Apostle Paul coming to visit us anytime soon. But we do anticipate Christ's return and his assessment. Um, so we should too, with regularity, assess our lives. We should examine ourselves. We should know ourselves. Now, for those of you here who are a bit OCD or a bit perfectionist, uh, the idea of self-assessment might be horrifying to you. Um, you might think that the only result of that 
kind of practice would be feeling completely inadequate and just awful. John Newton, you know John Newton, right? He wrote Amazing Grace. So he, he was an 18th century uh, slave trader who um, converted, was born again. And he was an Anglican minister. He didn't publish books, but he was a prolific letter writer. It's kind of an art that we've kind of forgotten now, but he was a prolific letter writer. And in one letter, he, he talks about how Christians put too little time and effort into examining themselves and seeking to grow in holiness and the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And he, he goes on to say that this sort of examination shouldn't doom the person to feeling overwhelming shame, but it should lead to repentance and it should lead to rejoicing. Because he says the deeper the knowledge of sin in your life, the richer the rejoicing in grace should be. Now back to the passage. So probably the, the really good question to ask is how do we examine ourselves? How do we test ourselves? How do we know ourselves? Well, one way, well, the best way really, isn't it, is to come to the Scriptures with an open heart, asking for Holy Spirit guidance and with the assurance of grace and say, what is the Scriptures telling me? How is the Scripture challenging me right now? Where does the text Point to, where does it point to areas in my life that I need to pay attention to? As we read these final words from Paul, you know, I think there are three areas which we need to examine ourselves in. I think there are three areas we need to ask the hard question of, are we on board with Jesus in these three areas? I think that's the purpose of this last part of the passage. And those areas are belief, Behavior and unity. So, those are the three little sections of the sermon. First, let's talk about belief. The belief, let's call it the belief test. It doesn't sound fun, does it? But let's have a go. Back to verse 5 again. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Right. What do you notice there? It's not examine yourselves to see if you have enough faith. That, I mean, I don't know about you, that's an instant fail right there, probably. Uh, it's, it's see if you are in the faith. There's a definite article in the Greek, in, in the English. There's a def- it's the faith. The test, the question we ask ourselves is, are we within the parameters of the apostolic gospel? And, and don't, it's not something we should assume. We should test it. We should question that. We should think about that. You could ask yourself, for example, you could say, okay, um, what, what, what parts of the sort of dominant cultural narrative out there have seeped into, into my faith in a sort of an unhealthy way, right? The false teachers, they, they taught Jesus. They talked about Jesus, but it wasn't the Jesus of the Bible because their gospel was incredibly heavily, hev- uh, heavily influenced by the culture to the point where it wasn't the gospel anymore. Now ask yourself, does, does my faith line up with the historic faith as it's summarized in the creeds, for example, the apostolic, I mean, the, uh, uh, the Apostles' Creed that we just read out? Um, yeah. Do you find that, let's say somebody famous dies, you know, and they're really lovely, like one of those real lovely people that dies that's really famous. And, and, and do you say to yourself, oh, well, they just live this great life. They were an ambassador for the UN doing something, or they, you know, they're always... Whatever, they were cool all the time. They had charities. Do you sort of say to yourself, oh, well, they'll, they'll be okay because they live this really famous good life. They're, they're probably okay with Jesus, surely. 
And that's not Christianity. That's just sort of thinking what culture thinks, right? Uh, you could ask yourself, you could say, um, uh, well, let me put it like this. Do, do you follow Jesus personally, but think that other faiths that are sincerely held make that person okay with God? That's an example of kind of a cultural narrative coming into the Christian faith. I mean, that's not what Jesus taught. That's not what the Bible teaches. Are you in the faith? That's the question. Are you in the faith? Test yourself. Examine yourselves. And, and let me remind you, it's not, and this is very important, it's not the strength of your faith, but it's the object of your faith that actually saves you. I'll say it again. It's not the strength of your faith. It's the object of your faith that actually saves you. The followers of the super apostles probably had an enormous amount of faith in this false, this false gospel. But that's a bit useless, isn't it? We are infinitely better to have a very fragile faith in the authentic Jesus. So in summary, Paul is... The loving father of this congregation says, examine yourself, examine your faith. And he's not saying, again, I just want to keep repeating this because it's important. It's not saying, um, how are you feeling about your faith? Or how faithful are you? No, it's actually far more objective than that. It's, it's a question of commitment to the authentic, historic, biblical beliefs and doctrine of Christianity. So I think some of the practices of the Anglican Church and more liturgical churches are really helpful. It's each, each week, through the liturgy and uh, the, the flow of the songs, how they're chosen, we rehearse the gospel. We recite the creeds. Each week we remind it of the basic gospel message. And it's, it's so important that we do that. And it's the reason why that, um, and I want it to impact you. It's the reason why, do you know when sometimes I lead and I get, I'll grumpily say, look, stop, let's say that again, please. And uh, I always felt a bit bad when I do that. But it's because I don't want you to just jog through it. Uh, just sort of saying it without really thinking about what you're saying. I want it to impact you. Okay, let's move on. That's the belief test. Are your beliefs orthodox? As we know, though, as we know, you can have great doctrinal beliefs, but not be a follower of Jesus. So the next test, the next examination is the behavior test. So this is part two, the behavior test. So in verse five, Paul reminds them of uh, the, as one sort of archbishop called it, the mystery and magic of Christ being in them. Isn't that wonderful? The mystery and magic of Christ being in them, dwelling in them through the Holy Spirit. We, if you're a Christian, you have this inward witness, you have this Consciousness is not a great word, but you have this Christian consciousness that, that should reproduce the character of Christ in you, which is why Paul says things like this. I hope you'll find out that we have not failed the test in verse 7, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong, but you, that you may do what is right. For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not tearing down. So he's saying, look, I'm coming to visit, and clearly some of you guys are living a life which does not reflect the fact that the Holy Spirit is in you, producing the character of Christ. See, Paul expects repentance, and he expects progress. He expects a change in our life. Now, how do we test this? How do you test this? Uh, again, let me just 
let me throw out some questions just to prime the pump. And then you can go away and sort of think and pray about this yourself. Here's a couple of questions. Uh, when you look in the mirror, do you see someone whom King Jesus lives? When you listen to the sorts of things you say, does it sound like the words coming from uh, something Jesus might say? Or are you talking like everyone else talks? When you talk to other Christians, do you see them as brothers and sisters? Or do you see them as kind of just random people around you? When you pray, do you pray more not to do evil than not to suffer evil? I think that's an important one. When you pray, do you pray more not to do evil than not to suffer evil? Are you more worried about being a victim than a sinner? Okay, there's a few things to think on there. Look, I, I, Christ's presence and his indwelling is proved by an altered behavior. And St. John's, we are a Bible-believing church, right? We're Bible, you know this. We're a Bible-preaching church. Orthodox Bible-preaching church. That's why many of you come here. That's great, that's brilliant. But I, we want to be a changed life church as well. There's one of the downsides of that. I mentioned the upside of the sort of the Anglican style, right? One of the downsides is that we can actually say all the right things, and we can give the appearance of faith, but actually nothing has changed. When we preach through James, we, we learn a lot of good stuff when we preach through the book of James. And James tackles this uh, idea quite full on. Let me just read one verse that you'll be familiar with from chapter 2, verse 14. He says, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? You notice the passage, it doesn't read, it doesn't say this. It doesn't say, if someone has faith and does not have works, they can be saved. It says, if someone says they have faith. If someone says they have faith but does not have works, can that faith save them? So the person, um, this person in this rhetorical question, just says they have faith. It's the person with all the right answers, right? It's mental assent to doctrine, but it's not a faith that results in a changed life. Can that kind of faith save that person? The inferred answer is no. So this means that it's possible to have the object of faith straight but not actually be right with God because it's not real faith. It's, it's a belief system. It's just sort of a mental ascent to a set of ideas that never makes it past our mind, never makes it past propositions into our hearts, never makes it past uh, our mind to affect the way we actually live and the way we act. That's the warning from James, and it lines up very well with what Paul is saying here. The life of faith is not a life of private transactions with God. It's a life of obedience. Because true faith means that the Holy Spirit has entered your life, it's entered my life, and it's transforming us into the likeness of Christ. And there's going to be backwards and there's going to be forwards and our, and our, our path through life, our journey through life, our, our walk through life, we will look a bit drunky sometimes, a bit staggery sometimes. But there is forgiveness and there's onwardsness. And over time, true faith results in a changed life. That's the trajectory that Paul expects, that the Bible expects. So that's the behavior test. So we've had the doctrine test, we've had the behavior test, now the unity test, and we'll do this one quickly and finish up. As we practice this self-examination, as we take stock of our lives, which we should regularly do, Paul reminds us of the importance of church, family, 
unity. He does that in verse 11 there. He says, finally, brothers, and that means brothers and sisters, finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. Uh, the, the church, this was a factious church. They, they had lost a clear picture of Jesus through this false teaching. They'd lost a grip of the gospel. They'd failed the doctrine test. They'd failed the behavior test. And of course, that's just carnage in a church. That's chaos. You can't have unity there. So they're under enormous pressure, this church community that Paul is writing to. And he doesn't want to dissolve the church. He wants them to thrash it out. He wants them to work it out. And that's going to be hard yards. He wants them to be restored relationally to each other, to him. Not so they can just have polite services, not so they can have quaint little gatherings. No, he wants real unity. He wants joy. He wants peace. He wants real affection to emanate from this group. So he encourages them in five things. He says, rejoice, one. Two, restoration, three. Comfort one another, four. Be of one mind, five. Live in peace, six. Kiss each other. Let's, let's do them. I know what one you're looking forward to. Right, here we go. One at a time. Rejoice. What's the appropriate response to being forgiven by God? It's, it's joy, isn't it? To aim for restoration. This means that broken relationships are in the church. Folks, I know some of you guys have uh, broken relationships with each other. I know there are conflicts in our congregation. And you guys, that is sinful. It hurts the gospel. And you need to work it out. You need to repent. And you need to come to these people that you have disagreements with or that you've had arguments with. And you need to sort that out. Three, you need to comfort one another. This could be translated encourage one another. When I assess my life as I've been doing, as I've been thinking these three things, I think this is one I really need to work on. I need more encouraging Christian friendships. I need those kind of friendships where we hold each other accountable, where it's not just we, we gather and we you know, have a drink and we talk about politics. I love talking about politics, but we talk about politics and we talk about sports, which is... Oh, I, want, I want those kind of friendships where they really sincerely encourage each other in our faith, where we are truth-tellers, where we call each other out, and we walk with each other in pain. Four, be of one mind. This is not think the same thing. It's not we must have exact doctrinal unity on every topic. Within this congregation, we all have things that we disagree on, minor doctrinal issues. That's fine. I'm not worried about that stuff. What this is talking about is it's, it's having your mind set on the same object, and this is Jesus. Five, live in peace, he says. Set your mind together on Jesus, and you'll know peace. Uh, six, kiss each other with a holy kiss. It's called a holy kiss because he doesn't want people to think he's being erotic or you know, doing some weird sort of thing in the church. Uh, back in New Zealand as it is in Australia and some European countries, people kiss each other when they greet each other. Uh, that is, that's standard practice in, in New Zealand anyway. And uh, between the sexes, you, if I saw a girl that I knew well, I'd, I'd give her a kiss on the cheek. And um, uh, in my life, though, in New Zealand, there are a couple of guys that I will kiss when I see them. And there's, there's only a couple of them. And uh, we only get to see each other every couple of years. And this is, I don't mean to sound weird, but those kisses mean a great deal to me. They are precious, precious things to me. Because they communicate to me that, Aaron, you are, you are very special. And uh, 
so special that I'll cross this kind of weird intimate thing and give you a kiss on the cheek. And uh, they're saying, I value that friendship. And I think this is the kind of thing that Paul was getting at. Now, I just need to add an anendum. What is that word? An anendum. What's it called? A D. Addendum. Yeah, that's a hard word. Addendum. Uh, This is just a case I've done this to you. Sometimes I forget I'm in Canada, and I will will go to kiss somebody on the cheek because I've just forgotten. I realize it's not done so much over here and somebody will put the they'll think I'm going in for a hug and they'll put their head in the wrong position and I I'll kiss them on their ear like right right in their ear I will kiss them and I never know what to do I have done it probably 20 times in the last few years and if I've done it to you I'm sorry and uh and sometimes I'll do it, and honestly, it's right, right in the ear, mwah, right in the ear. And I'll pull back and I think, should I wink or something? Should I, <laughs> as I'm pulling back, should I say something like, it's okay, I'm a priest? Something like that. It's like I'm a priest. Uh, so if I've done that to you, I'm really sorry. I just, I just forget where I'm living and it's not right. Right. So, so this Holy kiss thing. That, what, what's Paul talking about? He's just, it's an intimate greeting, and it says this. It says, we share a special bond because of Jesus. That's what the kiss is about. So whatever that looks like in our context, whatever kind of intimate interaction that looks like in our context, we should do that. We should be a congregation that has genuine affection for each other. Like these kids that come up the front and just run up to each other and touching each other and they calling each other's names and big smiles. It's wonderful. We should have that kind of affection for each other. Examine yourselves in that area, would you? Test yourself in that area. Know yourself in that area. I don't want you to come to church and do this and then take off straight away afterwards. I mean, sometimes you have something going on in your life that requires that and that's an appropriate it's an appropriate thing. But a good chunk of the time, folks, I want you to be um, just uh, happy to see each other and tender with each other. Okay, let me finish up here. So Paul calls for self-examination. It's a hard and wonderful thing. You know what's wonderful? What's wonderful about it is that because the more we see our own flaws and sins in our life, the more precious and amazing God's grace is to us. And the more that happens, the more aware you are of God's wonderful grace, the more you're able to drop your sort of denials and self-defenses and admit actually, actually admit what's going on in your heart to God and to other people. And when you do that, that's when the stuff can be dealt with. It's a tremendous thing to do, and it's a difficult thing to do, and it's a messy thing to do, but it's a very necessary thing to do. So let me finish with a prayer that Paul finishes with. Obviously, it's a prayer very familiar to us. Paul finishes this great challenge of reminding us that our mending, our progress in the areas of uh, faith, doctrine, behavior, unity, that our healing in these areas, it doesn't lie in us. This is not a call to pull yourselves up by the bootstraps. This is not a call to like, come on, try harder, people. You can do better. That's not the call. 
Paul's prayer right at the end, which is called the peace, reminds us that this can only happen, change can only happen in these areas when we know the astounding grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the undeserved love of God and the uh, magical and amazing indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's the only way this stuff happens. So, together, can we pray this piece together? Would you say this with me? If you don't know it, you'll learn it pretty quick. Here we go. Together. In the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen.